0: Good morning. Um, We're studying chapters 63, 64, and 65 of Isaiah today. So if you want to get that ready, that would be great. And as you know, I just love it when, uh, you know, as the teacher in me loves to give you guys little homework assignments, at least lately. There's something I'd like for you to, at your tables, talk together and consider as we open up these chapters and, the, and that is what is it that makes uh, Israel a nation you know when I think about our country that we have these distinctives that make us a nation one of the things where we say to each other is we're a pluralistic society we are many people that make one nation and what is it that holds us together well it's our um, it's our, our creed of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's our, you know, these are things that are so deeply ingrained in us since childhood about, about our country. And um, I want to ask you to take a few minutes to explore just a little bit. What are the distinct distinctives that made and make Israel uh, a nation that made is ancient Israel we're talking about ancient Israel what made them a nation that separated them from all the nations around them okay spend a few time, a little bit of time talking to each other about that and I'd love to hear your answers <laughs> hearing some of your answers it's great yeah you're right on so when you have something to share something you can can share with all of us just just uh, stand up and tell us I would I'd love to hear go Sarah okay monotheistic some things. Thank you so much, Sarah. Anybody else? Something else? Oh, we're tired this morning. I know. I feel, I feel your tiredness. <laughs> I feel it too. Anything else you want to share? They have dietary restrictions. Yes, the law. Dietary restrictions. Okay. Anything else? They have all kinds of rules about how to live their lives as a Set yeah. apart from the nations around them, mm-hmm. and really result to interact in specific ways with the people around them. Right. Yes. Yes. And, uh, they Sharon. were called. They were a they nation <coughs> created by God himself. Mm-hmm. He called mm-hmm. them, he rescued them from slavery, brought them out of Egypt, he mm-hmm. gave them the covenant and they were to be God's representatives mm. on this planet I mean to be the light of the, what we're doing as a church now mm. yes thanks Sharon good okay well you guys are uh, hitting a lot of the really good and important things and uh, I was thinking about this because of a time when I was teaching women's Bible study way back in the day <laughs> And we were studying a section of scripture that was about Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and their sons, Esau and Jacob. And on a particular day, I was uh, the teacher, the Bible teacher. So I was preparing and studying and seeing what other people had to say about this particular passage, whether Bible scholars. But some of these scholars were claiming that Isaac... Or Rebecca or Jacob, that they were somehow extraordinary spiritual people, and that's why God favored them, and that's why God selected them. You know, and was work it was in was their God. And I'm reading about these people's lives, you know, <laughs> deception and uh, betrayal, and I'm going, these people are just as messed up as I am. <laughs> What do you mean they're particularly spiritual people? And I mean really messed up. So why? Why were they written about? Why were we studying them? There really wasn't anything special about them. But wait. There was something special about them. There was only one thing that was special about them. One very important world-changing thing. Their God. And all the other nations, if you think about it, think about all those Bible stories we know. They're drawn, in the beginning, they're drawn to Israel. They come there sometimes seeking out this very special, active God that they serve. The God above all the gods of the other nations. Um, like think about Naaman who traveled a long distance to be healed by the only God who could heal him so, so uh, incredible was that that he took dirt back from, (laughs) from Israel back to his country so that he could worship this one true God so Today's prayer, prayed by Isaiah, which is what we're studying in chapters 63 and 64, is all about that. It's all about their God. And yes, the other nations have their gods, but Isaiah is going to say in verse 4 of chapter 64, he says, For since the world began, no eye, I'm sorry, excuse me, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a god like you a god who works for those who wait for him so as i'm looking at this prayer i i was wondering well why why now they talk in the previous chapters about intercessory prayer but here there's actually prayed an intercessory prayer isaiah as we discover takes on the voice of his people he becomes their voice and i was wondering what might have prompted this so uh this prayer follows on those first six verses about the description of the man that's dressed in red remember bev talked to us about this and he came from the wine press of bosra in edom bosra was the word for wine press and edom was a, an enemy a place where a lot of Israel's enemies that was known for that is a very frightening image it's an image of blood and violence and vengeance but it's also an image of redemption how weird is that so so you know that that was my big takeaway from Bev's lesson was that vengeance and redemption came at the same time wasn't that wild two sides of the same coin and so I said well what prompted this prayer now here I believe the answers are found in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 64 so look at those for a second it's what it's Isaiah has this vision and this is what he sees he sees your holy cities are destroyed Zion is a wilderness. Yes, Jerusalem is in desolate ruin. The holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down. And all the things of beauty are destroyed. And worst of all, God has become distant. And to them, he's gone silent. Um, so when I was thinking about that, I was thinking... Um, I was thinking about Isaiah being the intercessor. I was thinking about how in the past, those intercessors actually in in Israel's past had taken on God's heart. I thought, I went and I looked when Abraham interceded for Sodom and he was talking all the time about, he was saying, you're going to destroy the whole city, he says. And then he said, well, what if there's 10 righteous people there. Will you save the city for 10 righteous people? And and anyway, one time I was listening to someone talk with us, they said, and they told me this truth that was dawning on me that Abraham was standing in this place to actually be the voice of God talking to God. God saying, God interceding for us. (laughs) Do we not know? God the Son interceding for us. When Isaiah takes on this position, he is actually taking on what Jesus will take on for us. He is interceding for his people. He's actually praying and beseeching God for what God really wants to do, and that is save. He wants to save. He calls it a day of vengeance, but a year of redemption. A day is short. A year is long. He and God's heart is we've been reading about judgment and judgment and judgment but it's because they have to come together. But his heart is to save. That's what we need to always remember. That when we intercede for others too, it's because we too reflect the very heart of our God. A God who saves? Have you ever faced a situation in which you've offended someone so deeply that they've broken relationship with you? Like the breakup. You know, breaking up is hard to do. <laughs> but relationships are like that, aren't they? With this person that you've offended so deeply, you don't talk anymore, you don't call or text or right. in fact all you have are memories memories my, my daughter she broke up with her boyfriend two and a half years she has a memory box you know a memory box little momentums of their relationship but it's put away memories are of the good times usually the affection, the love it's memories of why you were friends in the first place what brought you together and that's where Isaiah begins. He begins with the memories. He begins talking about and remembering the very special beginning that they had with, this, with their very distinctive and different and above all others God. Remembering that incredible special relationship and it all began with God's character. Remember These people are just like us. So he says in verse 7, which is where we pick up I will tell of the Lord's unfailing love. I will praise the Lord for all he has done. I will rejoice in his great goodness to Israel which he has granted according to his mercy and his love. When we began this journey in Isaiah, we're now at the end when we began the we read these words in the first chapter. My people don't recognize my care for them. What care is that? Verses 8 and 9 talk about it, remembering. He said, They are my very own people. Surely they will not betray me again. And he became their savior. Because remember, our God is a God who saves. In all their suffering, he suffered. And he personally rescued them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them through all the years it's the most tender parent child imagery isn't it it's it's he says they are my very own people that's commitment that's a zealous commitment and that's what god has for his people in all their suffering he suffered also um, have you ever heard this phrase, love me, love my child, or love my child, love me? Is there any place where a person can hurt or something can hurt you more deeply than when it affects your children? Is it? Is there? No. I've never hurt so much in my life as when my children hurt. My daughter is going through a struggle with the college thing. I've cried probably more tears than she has. <laughs> you know, it's just. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, their suffering is mine. Your suffering is God's suffering. Um, I'm shredded when my daughter is hurting. And God's like that with his people. He is shredded at your suffering. As a father, he lifted up his people and he carried them the way we carried our children. It speaks of deep affection. And cherishing love. Painfully, we read in verse 10, but they rebelled against him. Have any of you had your children rebel? How does that feel? And they grieved his Holy Spirit. Have they ever grieved you? So he became their enemy and he fought against them. Why? He's fighting not, he's fighting against their rebellion. The commentary, the author or, uh, extraordinaire, Barry G. Webb, <laughs> who you know I love, um, he writes that this is a recalling of their time in the wilderness following their escape from Egypt. And so he says this. He says, In order to preserve his holiness, the father had to become an enemy and judge those he loved god 's judgment just comes out of love, and they begin to ask in verse fifteen let's see excuse me i 'm sorry, I jumped a little bit and then um, and then they remembered, and boy, what they remembered was no little thing. it was the time of a super powerful, super divine supernatural rescue by God of his people. The parting of the Red Sea, deliverance from and destruction of their enemies who were pursuing them. And through this, God gained a magnificent reputation with him and with all the surrounding nations. Every nation heard about this and they were like, wow. You know, who is this God? No ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you. The nations came to recognize that unlike them, Israel had a very special God. A God who was active. A God who works. And a God who works for those who wait before him. And in verse 15, they they ask this question that's really disturbing them. Or Israel, uh, Isaiah asks this question. He says, are you still our father? He says, uh, Have you, if you guys, if you think about relationships that you've had. I remember one time I was riding in the car, and I had really wounded my father, my dad. And there was silence in the car. The two of us were going, and it was silence. And it was in that silence that... The full weight of what I had done was—it came down on me, and I burst into tears. And it was when I burst into tears that my dad and I started to talk, and we—there uh, was reconciliation, but there was also repentance. I needed to change my ways. Um, they rem. Uh, so they begin to ask about the relationship about God. Isaiah asks about their relationship He says, "Has it changed forever?" He asks, "Is it over?" You know, I don't know. <laughs> is God done with them, And has he wiped his hands of them at last? Just think about their history in chapter six. We read of isaiah 's vision of God on his throne in his temple, and I think this is what he had in mind when he beseeches God to look down from heaven from his holy glorious home and he says see us he's become so identified with the people by now as he's been praying that um that he, uh, he he there's no difference between him and them he at this point in verse 15 he actually becomes the voice of the people and they ask god where are you when god is distant or we think he is, and when he's silent, that's our question. Where are you? Where, and they ask, based upon their history of what they just remembered, of their mighty deliverance, he, they say, where is the passion and the might that you used to show on our behalf? Where are your mercy and compassion now? surely you're still our father surely you are and i i can't think of, help but think about uh a breakup and you know the where your where those sorts of questions are where's where is the the love and the passion that we used to share it's like that it was like that in these questions It's ironic that up to this point we have read chapter after chapter of God imploring his people to turn back to him. But now we read these words. The people implore God in verse 17. Return and help us for we are your servants. We're the tribes that are your special possession. Trying to remind God, probably reminding themselves. In verse 15, they'd ask God to look down from heaven and see them. And now, in verse 1 of chapter 64, they ask him, come down. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. And Isaiah pictures that it would be like the Lord coming down from Mount Sinai when the weight of his glory made the mountains shake. And the fire of his holiness made them smoke. And I, you know, I... I. uh I'm just going to say this. This is a little aside. This is one of the asides I was telling you about. Caroline, <laughs> I told Caroline I'm probably going to go off script, so you know. Um, I saw this really cool um, video of the Hubble, the Hubble telescope. Have you guys ever seen that? And it's where they actually go. They can show some of the fantastic things that are way far away from our world. But that God created. There's the most amazing, beautiful. But when I watched this, I it dawned on me. God is so much more than we can ever, with our infinite minds, understand. We cannot comprehend who it is we're talking to when we pray. If if you see something like that, you get an idea of His. Vastness and immensity and if he made the entire universe can you imagine how heavy he is if God were to come to earth really I mean the earth would be like a little bubble or a ball that would just sink under the weight of his glory so I think he was being I'm sure the full glory of God was not there on Mount Sinai but it was enough to make the whole to make everything shake the weight you know like C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce when he talks about the weight of those people that they walk on the, the, the ones that are, that are not the sanctified, they are not, they're, they're so light that the grass hurts their feet and the others are so powerful and weighty and heavy. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about that weight. And he says... If, if God came down now, he goes, it'd be like that. It'd be like Mount Sinai when the weight of your glory made the mountains quake and your holiness made, that made them smoke. And then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, he says in verse three, and did awesome deeds way beyond our expectations. For since the beginning of the world, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. And Now they've been looking at their great God and finally they turn their eyes. Isaiah turns, helps them to turn their eyes on themselves. This is called confession. And when God is looking on them, this is what he sees. They've looked at God, his awesome power and holiness, his faithfulness, his compassion, his mercy. Now they look at themselves. And this is what they know that God sees when he looks down, like they asked him to, from his glorious home and he sees them. This is what they see. He sees. We, verse 5, are not godly. We are constant sinners. And they ask the question How can people like us be saved? How? We're all infected and impure with sin, they say. When we display our righteous deeds, all that good stuff we do, it's nothing but filth. Like autumn leaves, we wither like they do, and we fall, and our sins sweep us away in the wind. And this is where the people seem to imply that perhaps God's finished with them, because perhaps they're finished with him too. Verse 7 Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy and therefore you've turned us over to our sins. It seems that the people are so bent on sinning that God's left them to perish in their sinful ways. It seems that way. Paul echoes that in Romans one twenty four when he wrote, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. No matter uh, the trip down memory lane at the beginning of this prayer, the final plea that they have is that their father would not remember. That he would not remember their sins forever. That he would hear their cry and that he would help them. And that this punishing silence would end. And that God would not hold back. And that like he did in the past, he would act on their behalf in a miraculous, powerful, big way. And now at verse chapter 65, we have God's answer. He answers, he says, I was ready to respond, he said, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. And I couldn't help thinking about a crowded room where everybody is talking in there into their their social their social groups and, and there's God, maybe, or someone in the room that no one's talking to. That no one goes over there. There's some reason why this they don't go. God, you see, He hadn't gone silent. He was always there. The issue was not God had gone silent. It was no one sought to speak to Him. No one. Um, One time, I've got this little aside, but this sort of it made me think of this: that when I had finished a job, I kept waiting for someone to ask me for an exit interview. (laughs) And here, years later, I'm still waiting. it's just a little bit of like the heavens my sisters are not brass it's not that God is not answering it's that no one in this time was asking it's not that God is not there it's that they're not looking for him until now Isaiah has asked and behold God answers what a surprise and the other thing is that there's this twist in his answer. And this is very eye-opening for us as believers. It's actually the Apostle Paul that helps us to understand this. Verses 1b and 2. He interprets these verses for us in his letter to the Romans. chapters uh, Chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. In in speaking of the Gentiles, responding to the gospel of Christ, he quotes Isaiah. He says, I was found by a people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me, the Gentiles. And he continues in his quote of verse 2 to say, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious all day. They were the ones and they didn't come. This is evidence that because of the work of the suffering servant, because of Jesus, the gospel has been expanded to the Gentile nations and the meaning is clear. God is never in the business of hiding himself. He even revealed himself to those who didn't even know to ask for him. People hide. Adam hid God does not hide verse 2 through 7 all day long I opened my arms to a rebellious people and I can't help thinking of that is it in Brazil where they've got that big statue of Jesus that's got his arms opened up like this is the year of the Lord this is the time where people may approach they may know God this is the year of salvation this is the long time when we have opened to come to Christ to come and become part of his family but it won't last forever They won't last forever, and the man in red will come, and the day of vengeance will eventually happen. It says, but they followed their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes, and all day long they insulted me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. One author I read had this to say about those sacred gardens. He says, to use the imagery from Genesis 3, where, where man hides from God. There are trees in that garden, and the human being and he says, human beings to this day habitually ha- try to hide behind those trees. I pause here and I wonder well what are are there some trees that we hide behind, what altars are we in our culture sacrificing our lives to what are the what are the gods that we go to I know i 've explored this with you before, but in verses eleven he talks. They talk about the gods of fortune and destiny. It's no different, Fortune 500 readers. You know, it's no different. And recently, I had a a, situ, a social situation where I was talking to someone that's working one of these really high-pressure jobs with, that comes with a big income, big income. But the job as seems like it's become so demanding that this person is just become is becoming weary actually probably has become soul weary soul weary. and this person is realizing that this is not the place where they want to sacrifice their life um, but many do and as the discussion went further one of the people that we were talking with they, they asked this question why do, why do people stay there if that's the situation and the answer was what do you think the answer was Money. And one of the pagan gods that's mentioned in this passage, this is just a little joke of mine, it's called, his name is M-E-N-I, many, and I'm like, that sounds like money to me. (laughs) It's close enough. But that is one of the gods we sacrifice to, is it not? Is it not? Is that not one of our distractions? The picture I get, it's not that money is bad, It's when we sacrifice to that God. It's when we give our whole raison d'etre, our whole reason for being to that God. The picture I get of those who are in the garden is this place of unauthorized do-it-yourself worship, and the the true situation in those gardens was this. They were, uh, uh, because they wanted what they wanted, they were adopting these sacred gardens like their neighbors you know their neighboring nations, and they were using some of the rituals of their country. You know of of their religion of of gods' rituals in their practice of worshiping these other gods. And God is so insulted by that. You know he he says that's like a these, stink like smoke. That is so insulting to me, he says. Uh, Or the people, I think about that, I think about, it makes me think about them. People who, uh, uh, they have this unauthorized do-it-yourself worship that's, and and, and they're being so busy pursuing this manufactured, manipulated holiness that, that even when God is standing there ready to respond and ready to be found Their busy lives and their religious activities have them too preoccupied to notice. It's like that crowded room, right? God's there. He's standing there with his arms open. Or the people who ask God to bless their ministry or to bless their cause or good idea. But if they listened sometimes, if they were in that relationship sometimes... Through true, humble worship of the true God, they might get ears to hear. And they might hear God say, I don't want you to do that. That's not my call. I'm not in that cause. That's not my good idea. That's not me. It's you. It's your self-made offering that I do not find acceptable. In fact, it's an insult to me. It separates you from me. It's your way of creating and maintaining control so you can do your own thing and do your own will, but it's not my will. It's your way of keeping me from being God in your life. And it keeps you on the throne, pursuing your own imagination. And pursuing our own imaginations is always the nub of the problem in our human rebellion. And then you find you're living a double life. You're saying one thing but you're doing another thing. You're religiously devout on the outside and that's why they were saying I'm holy. Remember that if you'll find this verse in there in 65 they're saying I'm holy. Don't touch me. I'm holy. I'm holy. And they're doing lots of holy stuff but on the inside on the inside where is the relationship? Why are you silent, God? Because I'm not talking to you. That's why. Why are you distant, God? Because I haven't come to you. So, man, how long will this continue? This was ancient Israel. And God continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, You think I'm silent? For a while. I will not stand silent because, and this is the day of vengeance, it comes, I will repay. I will repay in full. Verse 8 and 9 uses the same imagery for Israel that Isaiah used in chapter 5 in the Song of the Vineyard. God was so disappointed. He prepared for all a beautiful, bountiful harvest of grapes and what he got was. And Bob and I, we've got this really cool devotional and it gives us the exact translation of different words and it's they were called stink fruit. Stink fruit. It's the literal Hebrew word for that harvest. Stink fruit. So now in these verses, we have a cluster of stink fruit. But it's mixed in with a few good grapes. And are any of you gonna go out and go strawberry picking? It's the time, it's time. But when you go strawberry picking, will you not pick through those strawberries? Are you gonna pick every single strawberry that's out there? No. You're gonna go through them. You're gonna pick out the good ones. Well that's what God is doing. That is what He is going to do. He says, He says, I'm not gonna destroy all. He says, I'm going to separate the good fruit from the bad. And he calls this good fruit, he calls them his true servants. Recall that in Isaiah 63, 17, Isaiah had said, Lord, why have you allowed us to turn from your path? Why have you given us stubborn hearts so that we no longer fear you? Return and help us, for we are your servants. Yeah, they in their past they had been. God would beg to differ, because he says in verse 10, he says, For my people who have searched for me, they will inherit the land. Remember? They weren't looking. Remember that was the issue? God was ready to be found. They were not looking for him. They wanted what? The ones who are in their sacred gardens, what do they want? Fortune. And a future, a glorious future of their own making and he says um, these these people who have searched for me he calls them the righteous remnant these are the ones that the promises are for he says in verse 13 my true servants will eat but you stink fruit you will starve my true servants will drink but you will be thirsty My true servants will rejoice, but you will be sad and ashamed. My true servants will sing for joy, but you will cry in sorrow and despair. Your name will be a curse among my people. I will call my true servants by another name. (coughs) Israel no longer another name. And Janice is going to take over next week. And I'm leaving you in a bit of a cliffhanger here. (laughs) But as you wait between this week and next week, ponder this. What is their new name? It's in there. See if you can find it. Search those chapters. Not just 63. Go back into 61 and 62 and see if you can find out what their new name is. God's people are going to no longer be identified on the basis of their ethnicity or even outward conformity to a form of religion. Israel's days of old were days of immense grace, the good old days. There was immense grace on the Lord's part and immense ingratitude on the part of his people. They were the days of unrequited love. Think about that relationship again now. No, God's people are going to be identified through repentance, obedient faith, and love. A passionate love that's born in response to God's passionate love to his true servants. Those who, like a bridegroom with his bride, And that's the clue right there. I just gave you a clue to the new name. Hope you find it. He That that God, the bridegroom, wants to spend eternity with. His people. His own possession. Sisters, let's pray. For since the world began, O Lord, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those of us who wait for you. Help us to wait in faith, in obedience, in repentance, and, oh God, fire up in us a passionate love for you.